All right, y'all. Um, wow. If only for the eagerness of the children to get to, to our studies, right? They were falling over each other to get there, which is wonderful to see. Uh, would you go to uh, Genesis chapter 43? We're almost, uh, almost done, actually, with Genesis. We've been in it for a while, I know, and there's always a risk in going through a book for this long that you'll wear people out, uh, and I hope that I haven't done that. Um, but I, I, I usually don't go this slow through books, but I thought it would be good on Sunday night, since it is more teaching-oriented, to do that and give you kind of an experience of a slow look, chapter by chapter, sometimes even less than a chapter, uh, through the book. Hopefully you're not tired of Genesis, though, is what I'm saying. Uh, there's, there's plenty of, of treasures within it. Uh, right now, at the moment, we're in the story of Joseph, and in particular, how he is um, being reconciled back to his brothers who had sold him into slavery years before. And, and we're kind of seeing in slow motion from chapter 42 all the way to chapter 50. It's a slow motion um, presentation of how a reconciliation happens. And so let's look tonight here at chapter 43. I, I want to read it to you and then we'll, we'll, say, we'll say a few things tonight. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him with us, we will not go down. For the man has said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? Uh, and what we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Sounds like the, the checkout line at Walmart there, right? Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, and I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they, brought to Joseph, because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in. 
so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said to him, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it with us again and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace be to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man uh, had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, And said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. God's word. So the, the reconciliation uh, between the brothers and Joseph began last week. Somebody tell me, what was the first step? Where did reconciliation begin? This is a test. Do you remember what we said? Starts with a C, ends with an onchance. Conscience, yes, that's right. Conscience is where it began. Um, we saw that the brothers, in order to reconcile to to Joseph had to first recognize they had done something wrong. But not just that they had done something wrong, they had to know exactly what it was, and they had to know that it was bad because it was against God and not just against the brothers. That's what conscience is, right? Conscience is like God's uh, policeman, so to speak, that he places within the human heart. You don't really have control over it, yet it's a part of you. It tells you, it makes you feel bad when you've done what you perceive to be wrong. And it approves of you and makes you feel good when you do what you perceive to be right. However, the conscience can be messed up. The conscience can be very uh, skewed. And so the boys needed their conscience to be sharpened, which Reuben helped to do. Uh, And then finally, Reuben showed how once your conscience is sharpened, the next thing to do is to desire to clear it, which is where we ended last time kind of abruptly. Uh, Reuben was very determined. I'm going to clear my conscience. I'm going to make good what I did wrong. I'm going to make it right again by doing whatever kind of repentance is necessary. 
And so today we see not where reconciliation begins, but where it hinges. It hinges on repentance. What is repentance? Before we even look at the story, we've got to get the definition right. What is repentance? Turn around. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. You turn. You're going one way. You stop going that way. You turn the other way, and you start going that way. So it's a negative and a positive. The negative is you stop going one way. You turn. The positive is you start going in a new way. It, it takes both of those things. Now, in the Bible, repentance is something both inward and outward. Okay? There is an inward part of it which is very complex that you can't see. It's unseen by people, but it's actually the most important part of repentance right here. It's what we talked about earlier in the call to worship. God desires a broken heart. That's the inward part of repentance, when your heart gets broken inside. And there's many steps to that, which we'll, I think, look at a few of those as we go. And it's only when those steps get done under the surface that the outward part of repentance, which you could call visible reformation, like your life is visibly changed in that particular area. You, you literally stop doing something and start doing a new thing. It's only through the under-the-surface work of inward humbling that the visible reformation can even happen. So, so most of the work of repentance is God's work in the secret places of your heart. And then it begins to show itself on the outside. This is one reason why we believe repentance, just like faith, is a gift from God. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it's a miracle when somebody repents. Because it takes the opposite thing that you and I like to do. We, we don't like to be humbled, do we? And yet what God does to help us repent is he humbles us down by several steps so that we finally realize we need to turn from our way and go to God's way, even though it might be counter-natural to us, counterintuitive to the way we would want to go. All right? So that's where we're going to go tonight. Uh, we're going to see the brothers, particularly Reuben, because Reuben is the one who kind of leads the way, along with actually Judah tonight, excuse me, Judah leads the way tonight. He is going to show us three aspects of the inward and the outward repentance. All right? You can see them in the bulletin if you'll look at it. There's taking responsibility. There's making restitution. And then there's resisting temptation. Three things that are involved in the inward and the outward. Uh, one, one word real quick before we dive in. Just one thing to add to that. Think of repentance. I wish I had my board tonight. Think of repentance like an iceberg. That'll give you a good mental image as we go through tonight. There's way more of an iceberg under the water than there is above it. There's a whole, it's a lot more weight, a lot more mass underneath than what you can see on the outside. Repentance is that way. It goes so much deeper within than it does without. And all that inward work is important to emphasize because you, you'll never be able to reconcile with God or with anyone else that you have wronged or that has wronged you with you unless you're willing to have that inward work under the surface done. Uh, and it's not easy. Let's look at it, okay? First of all, uh, there is the taking responsibility part, which is a, a very much an inward thing. Uh, anybody have trouble taking responsibility at different points in your life? Let me ask you this. Does anybody get annoyed when other people in your life don't take responsibility? 
Anybody? Uh, maybe this doesn't happen at your house, but have you ever noticed the pile of dishes in the sink? And maybe one spouse or one child is waiting for the, for the other. It does not happen at our house at all. This, I'm speaking only from my experience of you guys' house. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one spouse is waiting for the other, or one child for the other. Okay, when are they gonna? When are they gonna get their stuff in gear and get these dishes clean, right? And isn't it annoying to to us? We, and sometimes we don't even think about the fact that wait a minute, I walked by it ten times and I didn't do anything about it. Why am I so annoyed at the dishes, right? That doesn't happen on either of our parts, right? <laughs> Maybe not at your house either. Repentance requires, and this is way more serious than dishes, uh, repentance requires that you, in many areas of your life, take on the responsibility for the actions you take rather than passing them off onto others. Now, I understand in the Christian gospel, the, the core of the Christian gospel is that Christ takes off of us what we can't carry, right? I understand that. And I'm actually not talking about that aspect because uh, my, my argument right now is you, you never will reach for Christ to take off your responsibility if you don't think you've got any. That makes sense? Like if you're someone always passing the buck spiritually or in relationships, why would you ever need Christ to carry the burden? Because in your mind, you don't have a burden. The burden is on them because they're terrible people. <laughs> and, and they need to get their stuff in gear. So Jesus saved them. Uh, it's only when you realize, wow, I do have a weight. I am responsible for the things I've done. And I am responsible for the people I've hurt. And I am responsible for the ways I've ignored God in my life. It's on, it's on me. And I am going to be held accountable for it with God. That's the, only, like, that's the only way you'll ever cry out, Jesus, take my burden. Right? Well, look at the story, because you see this happening. The, the brothers obviously had, a tr had trouble with this in years past, because remember, they sold their brother into slavery, and then they made up a story about goats doing it, or whatever, wild beasts tearing up their brother. They were literally passing the buck to animals. And yet, notice in verses 1 to 15, uh, the family has stalled out, verse 1, the famine was severe, and they've been sitting around and eating all the grain they got the first time they went down to visit Joseph. And they ate all of it, it tells us. And Jacob says, go again and buy more food. Now, how much grain did they receive when they went the first time? Do you remember? Or maybe you don't, probably don't remember the exact amount, but answer this. Was it a little or a lot? It was actually a lot. Uh, if you go back and calculate it, each brother got like a pretty big a portion of grain and they all took it back and so this was quite a while actually probably they were sitting there just waiting and not doing anything eating on their stores until it all was gone now why were they waiting around it tells you verses three four five six kind of tells you why they were just sitting around stalled out nobody was taking any responsibility they were at a stalemate because dad refused. And you've got you to understand from Jacob's perspective why he refused to send Benjamin. Last time he entrusted the older boys with the younger boy, it didn't go well. And he's not going to make that mistake again. You are not taking Benjamin. 
well, they're not going back if they don't take Benjamin. You kind of see that playing out between Judah and Israel, Judah and Jacob in those first verses. Israel, let him come with us. Jacob, no. I mean, Judah, let him come with us. Jacob, no way. Judah, well, we're not going to go then. We're going to starve, you know. And finally, what does Judah do to turn his father's heart and to set in motion the next stage of the process? This is very key to understanding repentance. Look at verse 9 and 10. What does Judah do or what does he say that's so important? Yeah. He stands up and takes all the responsibility onto himself. He says it in three ways. And the language used in all three cases are like curse language. Like, he's swearing an oath here. I will be a pledge for Benjamin. I swear, if he dies, I'll die. From my hand, you shall require him. In other words, if if he doesn't come back and you're looking for justice, Dad, take it out on me. And then lastly, let me bear the blame forever if he doesn't come back. That's a big change from the same brother who back when they sold Joseph. Remember what Judah said? I'm going to ask you another question. What did Judah say? Yeah, Judah, the only thing Judah could think to say is, oh, let's don't kill him because we won't make any money that way. Let's sell him. That way we'll make some money out of the deal at least. That's a big change. Uh, Profiteering, very sort of irresponsible, hateful, spiteful Judah has become... A man who you could call godly. A man who's saying, the responsibility is mine and I'll take it. Dad, lay it on me. Send the boy with me and I'll take it. Now, look at how his father, Jacob, responds. This is critical too. Because when you take the blame on yourself or when you take responsibility for your actions, when that under-the-surface work of repentance starts to happen, you start to feel the weight of it. What do you need the most? Look at what Jacob says. After, after all the Walmart checkout aisle stuff, get the pistachios and the honey and the... Yeah, skip all that because that's the present that he wants him to take. After that, what does he say? If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. So, so Jacob is expressing trust in his son. Now, that's what that means, I think. Uh, he, he is saying, Judah, I see that you are being a man here. You're being a very mature person. You're taking responsibility. I trust you. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. My, I'm throwing my towel in with you, Judah. But what does he say right before that? Mercy. Mercy. Um, this is important because... Uh, That's what we need to hear the most when we start to learn in the heart to take responsibility for our own actions. When we start to realize the weight of our our own actions and our own sins, it starts to really weigh on us and even can crush us. We need that message of, may God Almighty show you mercy. Because you are going into something that's tough. You just swore an oath that's big. Like, you, you swore a forever curse on yourself. May God have mercy on you. And don't we need that? Uh, that's what I mean. You, 
you got to get to where you feel the burden before you'll ever ask Jesus to take it off of you. But as soon as you start to feel that burden, I guarantee you, when you hear the gospel, you're going to want Jesus to take that burden off of you. <laughs> you're going to be pleading for mercy to God Almighty, as it says there. El Shaddai, by the way, is what God Almighty is in Hebrew. You've probably heard that name of God. It's a very prominent name of God among Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. El Shaddai, the God of all power, God Almighty. May he grant you mercy before Joseph. And implied there is may he also grant you mercy before himself. Now, in each of the points tonight, each of the aspects of repentance, we're going to see something like this. It's going to be cool as we go through. I hope you're going to like it. I liked it as I saw it. Each time the, the boys demonstrate one layer of repentance, there is something else about God brought in. Okay, so this is just the first example. The mercy of God is brought in at this point, at the point of taking responsibility. And so let me ask you, you know, if you're thinking about reconciliation, which we talked about last week, is different than forgiveness. Didn't we talk about this last week? Maybe not. Reconciliation are two different, and forgiveness are two different things. Do you agree with that? Um, why would I say that? Let me, let me hear from you. Why would I say there are two different things? That's right. Yeah, because forgiveness can be one way. Reconciliation cannot be one way. This is not possible. You can forgive someone and choose in yourself to forgive them whether or not they do anything nice towards you ever again. Whether you, and actually, whether you never trust them again. You can still forgive them. But to get back into a relationship with a person, to trust, learn to trust someone again where they trust you, that's reconciliation. And, and that has always got to be a two-way street. It can't be one-sided or else it won't happen. Y'all see what I'm saying there? And so if you're talking about reconciliation, a very, very key step in that is first learning how you bear responsibility in it. Why? Because we always come to relationships first thinking about their side and what they should be doing and not thinking about ours. Don't we do that? It's the Jesus thing about the speck and the log. Um, you know, I got a speck in my eye. You got, I mean, I got a log in my eye. You got a speck in yours, and I am really concerned to tell you about that piece of sawdust because it is annoying. And here I am, two by four, walking around knocking everything over. And Jesus says, "Okay, I get it. The speck is a problem in somebody else's eye, but why don't you first, you know, get the two by four out of your eye, and then <laughs> you'll be able to see clearly to, to even begin to get the speck out of your brother's eye." Same deal there. you got to take responsibility first because reconciliation is a two-way street, not a one-way street. Forgiveness is one way, can be one way. It's not ideal that it's one way, but it can be. Reconciliation can't be one way. And it's not one way between us and God either, is it? It starts one way because it's God showing mercy before we even go to him. But once we receive his mercy, then it becomes two-way. We join in. The reconciliation process between us and God. All right, so that's the first thing. Taking responsibility. Judah shows it, and then um, Judah's father comes with an announcement of mercy to help encourage him as he takes responsibility. The second thing is this, and this is, uh, this is a trickier one. Making restitution. Making restitution. Uh, verses 16 to 25. 
repentance doesn't really exist unless you're willing to make some kind of restitution. Um, when I say that, what do you think? That, I, I realize in saying that, that might sound odd to you, maybe non-grace-driven to you. Tell me, what does that sound like? You must make restitution to truly repent and to truly be reconciled. Right. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah, there's something that there tends to be that tangibly needs to be done. But even before that, remember the iceberg? There's a tangible part of making restitution, helping someone, like making up for something you've done towards them. That's the tangible part. But there's the intangible being willing to make up for what you've done, which is a, a spiritual thing. It's a heart thing that you really can't see on the outside until you actually come to doing it. But even when you come to paying restitution, that doesn't mean you actually are willing to. We've all, as parents, seen forced restitution. <laughs> uh, and sometimes we've forced our kids to make restitution, and that's a right thing to do. Sometimes the law forces people to make restitution when they don't want to, and they should. That's what the law is for, actually. I mean, the law like in the court system, that's what it's for. Uh, when people don't want to pay restitution, they have to, because that's part of what makes things right again. Uh, but in spiritual terms, in gospel terms, God wants his people to be willing to clear the way, willing to show that they're wanting to go back on what they did. I mean, think about just a simple example. I think I've used this before. Uh, imagine that I went to your house, one of your houses. Say I went to Bob's house and I stole his truck in the middle of the night. I've used this. I think I've used Bob before too. Do you remember this, Bob? Okay, good. Imagine I, I snuck up to your house and I stole your truck one night because I really wanted to take a joyride. And I love your truck, Bob. I do. Your boat, okay. All right, okay. So I took your boat and your truck. And I'm going down the road. And I'm joyriding and then I'm taking your boat out into the lake and I'm just having a good old time. I'm spec fishing and I didn't even invite you in your own boat. That's, that's tough, isn't it? This is bad. Now, what do I need to do if I wreck his truck and sink his boat on that joyride night? I get, out of, I get out of hand, and I sink the boat, and I wreck the truck. Do I need to just be like, Bob, man, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'll never do it again. I promise. Scout's honor. Take me back, Bob. Is that enough? No. Why is that not enough? Yeah, I mean, well, of course. But think about why you have to replace it. Like, what, what is it about life and about the human heart and about the way the world's designed that requires that in order for there to be a patched relationship? Right. I did. I broke God's law. I did. And it's his joy. It's his joy. Yeah. That's right. What else? That's good. 
I ripped that off before, before I even drove it. I just shoof, ripped it off and replaced it with the appropriate tags. <laughs> Why else do I need to restore his stuff? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the reality is, what I did there is extreme. That's an extreme thing to do to somebody, right? To go and steal their truck and their boat and sink them. And that's, that's an extreme thing. And so a restri- an extreme demonstration of my genuine repentance is necessary. Or else, why should anyone believe me? Why should Bob believe that I'm sorry? Uh, which is why, you know, that law courts require that kind of thing. Like if I got arrested for that, which I would if Bob pressed charges then that would probably be part of how I had to make it right with the law, is probably pay him something to compensate for what I stole and broke. And that's rightful. And, and that, there's nothing in the gospel that takes that away. In fact, the gospel is actually based on this principle. Uh, why did Jesus have to die to save us? Because there was a restitution that we had to make to God that we cannot make. We cannot pay that bill. And so Jesus had to die because that he was paying the bill. He was restoring what we had broken, what we had stolen from God himself. In interpersonal relationships, we've we got to remember this. Uh, it's not enough uh, when we wrong someone or, or when someone wrongs us. It's not enough simply to feel bad for what we did and say we're sorry. To patch the relationship, we've got to demonstrate that we're there, we're committed to the relationship. Make sense? Now, if someone's not willing to do that, and they've wronged you and they're not willing to do that, you can still forgive them, and Jesus commands you to forgive them. But that's different than reconciling. You can't really reconcile them unless they're willing to show some sense of desire to rebuild trust. But you can forgive them. Make sense? Now, look at what uh, Judah does. Next, and this, this is how he seeks to make restoration. Uh, start in verse um, 15 and just kind of scan down. What are some of the things he does to prove it? To Joseph. Remember, he doesn't even know this is Joseph. So what he's doing is he's really making restitution to his father, right? You know, he's putting himself on the line for Benjamin now, the next son, and he's proving to his father that he's repentant by laying out all this cost. What is the cost he lays out? Doubled the money, right? He, and this is kind of, his dad helped him with this. His dad showed him, this is what I want you to do in order to prove to me that you really are repentant. Uh, you need to double the money. And you need to take the money that, you, that was given to you and double it and then take all the, all the items from the Walmart checkout line, right? Take, take this gift of, of uh, special, apparently these were things that were especially uh, there in Canaan that might not have been in Egypt. So he's bringing like a present from Canaan to the Egyptian lord. Uh, the balm and the honey and the gum and the myrrh and the pistachios and the almonds as a present. Uh, he bows down before the man, prostrate. Uh, he goes up to the steward. And kind of makes an entreaty. You know, he goes up to the steward and, and kind of smooths things over by saying, Oh, my Lord, this is verse 20. We have came, when we came the first time to buy food, um, 
we came to the lodging place and opened our sacks, and there it was, each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us, and we've brought more money in addition, and we've put all that back. What's he doing? Proving, right? That he is now ready to pursue. His heart has changed. He's ready to stop pursuing the stealing, grubbing, hurting activity that he once did. And he's ready to do the generous, giving, proving, trustworthy activity that he's now committed to. Very important. Uh, Now, I said, in each one of these points, something comes up about God, which is an encouragement to to the boys as they walk out the steps of repentance. And this time it comes from the Egyptian steward. A return of a theme in, in Genesis. Sometimes the pagans out Christian the Christians in the Bible. <laughs> Sometimes it's true. God is, has a sense of humor in this way. Look at verse 23. What does he say about God? Peace. To you. Peace. Yes. And then God your God. And the God of your father provided for you. Do you notice that? He provided for you. It's God's provision. It's, it's God's generosity that is brought up to encourage Judah and the brothers as they seek to make restitution. And think about it. When you go to make restitution for wrongs you've done, that's probably the number one thing you're worried about. Am I going to be able to afford it? Um, you, you know uh, when it comes to God, you didn't afford that, so Jesus came and paid it for you. Am I going to be able to afford what it costs to get back into a trusting relationship with this person? Well, God meets us. If we're willing to step out, God meets us and says, I will provide. And I have provided. Trust me. Walk the path of repentance, right? Walk the path of repentance. Seek peace with people because the Lord brings peace to you. Peace be with you. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. He provided. Any thoughts there before I move to the last thing? Clint, sorry, I didn't. I wasn't looking up, sorry. Twenty something years, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And now this example that you just went over is like he's out building. He's communicating. He's bringing extra money. He's putting it out there. He's walking up to the guy and saying, Look, this is what happened. Yeah. I'm he so God's work in his heart has has now illuminated his life in a way that he's he's just done by I'm not gonna hide from this. Yes. And that's very common. We see that in a lot of repentance. Like the first thing that happens is you stop hiding. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly right. Yeah, don't y'all see? Do y'all see that? And isn't this? Uh, I, I think these stories are hopeful, really hopeful about the brothers because this is a proof that people can change. People can change, and it's not because people are basically good and they just need to tap into their goodness. That's not it. People can change because God is gracious. God is merciful. God gives treasure. <laughs> 
not into human, not just into human grain sacks, but he gives treasure into human hearts and begins to turn them in ways that they would never be able to turn themselves. I, I love that. Judah's out in the open. Uh, Judah is no longer hiding, no longer in the shadows. And that leads us to our third thing, which is, I think the most, uh, so both of the first two were out in the open. This one is back kind of down into the inward part of the heart now. So we've kind of, we've talked a little bit about the things under the surface of repentance. We've seen that, but we've seen the little bit of the tip of the iceberg. And now we're going to kind of go back into the surface and see the really depths of what true repentance looks like. And it comes down to resisting temptation. This actually is the proof that repentance is real. Uh, but it's only a proof that you and God can know. Because it happens in the secret part of the heart. It happens when the old temptation resurfaces again, like it used to, except for you used to give into it. You've done all this, God's done all this in your heart, and you say you've repented, and now here's that temptation again. Are you going to go back, or are you going to stick with what God's doing in your life? Now, that's the test, right? We all know it. We've all experienced this. That moment, I know you have, right? I see some heads nodding. The old temptation comes back, and boom, you're, on, you're in the testing grounds. Am I going to go back to my old ways, or, I'm, am, or am I going to walk with the Lord here? Well, that's exactly what happens to the brothers. They are called upon to prove whether God's work has really been effective when they sit down to dinner in Joseph's house, and things start to happen that tempt them in the same ways they were tempted when they had sold Joseph. Look at verses 26 to 34. Joseph came home at noon for lunch, and he, he came in. They bowed down. There's this whole thing where uh, Joseph sees Benjamin, and again, he brings up something about God. God be gracious to you. We'll talk about that in a minute, God's grace. Then Joseph has to hurry out, verse 30, and he weeps in his room. He has to wash himself up because he weeps so hard. He comes back in, and then the food is served. Two weird things happen during dinner. And they're actually, I think, purposeful things that Joseph purposely makes happen in order to test the brothers. And even if Joseph didn't mean them purposely, which I think is kind of unbelievable if he didn't mean them, but even if he didn't, I know God meant them. What two weird things happened at dinner that, that makes them, it says it makes them marvel. Yeah, isn't that amazing? So they think they're in some strange Egyptian lord's house, and they get down, and their names are on the table, and they're in exact age order. That's weird. And it's not like they're kids still. These are grown men, and so uh, yeah, when you're grown, you can't really tell so much the ages, and so it's kind of like, wow, all right. They're looking around thinking, what does this guy know? This guy's either the best spy that has ever been, or... He's got some kind of divination going on, or I don't, we don't know what to make of this. And then something else weird happens. Okay, yep, Joseph shares the good stuff with them, which is in itself amazing. Why would he do that? Right, yeah, jo Joseph, remember, is kind of an Egyptian at this point. He's kind of been adopted into the Egyptian culture. It's kind of strange for him to share the Egyptian delicacies with these rugged, ratty Hebrews. That was their point of view, right? Rugged, ratty shepherd people. 
And yet he does. But as it goes down the line, Judah gets some, you know, Reuben gets some, Judah gets some, Naphtali, so on and so forth. And then you get down to little Benjamin, young man. What does he get? Boom, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's like he's at Texas Day Brazil. <laughs> he gets five times as much. Which I, I thought about that, you know, five times as much food. Um, if it were just like double as much, sometimes it's hard to tell. You're like, do you have more than me? You know, you look at a plate and you're like, did you get more than me or not? I'm not sure. Five times, there's no question. You get one steak and I get five, and there's no doubt, right? No doubt that something, something's going on here. Now, how is that a test of these brothers' repentance like no other? Yep, it's a a test of the same exact sin. Uh, I think Joseph means it this way, and I know God means it this way. Why did they try to kill Joseph and then sell him into slavery? What was the long and short of it? They were jealous. jealous. Why were they jealous? His father favored him. him. The obvious uh, sign that he favored him is he gave him that sweet coat, that either multicolored or long-tasseled or however you translate it. That, I mean, it's a very fancy special coat. He had it. They didn't have it. Uh, don't, no matter that they were grown men and he was still a kid, they still hated him for it. And they wanted to kill him, and then as a consolation, they sold him. Well, now they're back in the same situation. Grown men at a table, scared to death, and the little runt kid gets five times more Egyptian awesomeness at the table than they do. Talk me through what's going on in their hearts, potentially. Oh, man. Again? Why do we always keep getting bested by teenagers? (laughs) Does God not love us? Why do we always get, I mean, probably these things, these same temptations, I'm sure are resurfacing. And yet, as proof that they are really ready to repent and reconcile, even though they don't even know Joseph is there, they are demonstrating it. And maybe that makes it even more credible. Had they known that guy was Joseph, it might have been that they were just sort of putting on a show because they, want to, they don't want him to kill him, you know. But the fact that they don't even know it's Joseph, I think, shows even more credibly they're changed men. And, and they're willing to change, at least. Because here, Benjamin gets all of his stuff, and they don't freak out, and they don't get angry. In fact, it says, what does it say in verse 34? Something that's... They got drunk. With, with Joseph and the gang, right? They got, that's literally what it says. I, I'm sorry to say, um, almost none of the English translations are bold enough to say it. <laughs> they put it in a footnote in the ESV and in the King James Version in a footnote. But that's exactly what the word means. They drank and got drunk with Joseph. Now, laying aside the issue of getting drunk, okay? Let's lay that aside for right now. And let's just think about what that says about their state of heart when it comes to what Benjamin received and they did. Again, lay aside the morality of getting drunk and let's just focus on 
what they didn't choose to do versus what they did choose to do. What do you think? They're joyful. I mean, that's what it is, right? This is, I mean, they're having a great time. They don't seem to care that Benjamin got blessed five times more than they did. In fact, on the contrary, it seems like they're overjoyed. They're sharing in Benjamin's joy. They're sharing in Joseph's obvious joy. They're probably thinking, I don't know exactly why Joseph is so excited, but we're excited. This guy's excited, and let's have fun. That's a quite a different picture than what you saw 20-something years before in that desert when Joseph comes bounding out with his dreams in his head and the coat on his back. Right? doesn't say they sat down, ate, and drank, and got merry with him. It says they threw him in a pit and left him for dead. But now, man, all changed. Now, look at what it says about God. This is important. Because in resisting temptation, which is the main proof of repentance, and the main proof that you are on the path to being able to be reconciled, is you're able to resist a temptation. What do we need most from God when we're trying to resist temptation? What do we need to remember about God most every time we face temptation? Well, step back. What is temptation? That's right. Yeah, it's a drawing out of the heart against God. And usually the way it goes is something God's telling me to do, I think is not as good as what I want to do. And so I don't trust what God says. I trust what I say. God is not to be trusted. I'm to be trusted. And I want to do what I want to do more than what God wants me to do. That's what temptation is. What turns that on its head? Well, it's nothing but recognizing the immense grace of God in how he has treated you and how he currently treats you, right? The, the more I realize of his graciousness towards me, the more my heart is inclined to trust him and the less my heart is inclined to believe myself when I think I know better than him. You following me there? And so when Joseph said to Benjamin, Benjamin, uh, you know, he, again, he, he's not giving away that he's Joseph yet, but he says to Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son. For Joseph to invoke the grace of God, to name the grace of God, was preparing his brothers to face the temptation that they were about to face. And I think the consideration of that is something that had been at work in their lives to prepare them for that moment. The first time when they faced the temptation and they threw Joseph in the pit, they didn't really regard the grace of God at all. They thought they were getting ripped off by God. They didn't believe in the grace of God, but now they believed in it. And so they knew God was free to give Benjamin five times more than them if he wanted to. And they were happy for what God gave them, even though it was five times less. And they celebrated. They dined before the Lord. And yeah, they got carried away and they had a little too much, but they were joyful. And that was progress over where they had been years before. The table is now set for a full reconciliation, which is what we'll see next week when Joseph tests his brothers and they finally embrace one another completely. Uh, it's a beautiful scene. We'll get there next week.